This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Soon you'll hear from Philip Howard, recognized as an expert on regulation by both Democrats and Republicans. He'll fill us in on the absurd state of our overregulated economy, our overregulated government and country. Why do we have these thousand-page manuals telling us in precise detail what to do? It is crushing all of us, and he has bipartisan support on ideas on how to change it and make us breathe easier again. But first, let's look at what's ahead this week. Even though Labor Day holiday beckons, a lot is going on. Hong Kong, there are going to be more demonstrations. And one of the reasons China is holding back is that if they send troops into Hong Kong, it's not going to be like Tiananmen Square. Hong Kong has a lot of narrow streets, unlike Beijing. This would be a bloody hard fight. And so the protesters know it, Beijing knows it, but ultimately they've got to come to a negotiation, but it doesn't look good. Somebody said there are no hard ass by the demonstrators, and that means more turbulence. Now, the Federal Reserve is finishing its meeting up at Jackson Hole, and Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is not saying things that the White House likes. So the war with the Fed and the White House will continue, and there'll be pressure, more rate cuts. I hate to defend the Fed, but the chairman does have a point that the real overhang of the economy is trade. And the trade war is heating up as China puts on new tariffs on U.S. goods to show they're not backing down. Maybe that'll get the negotiators sitting down and getting something done. But in the meantime, that uncertainty is going to hurt business investment. Also coming in the week, a lot of statistics. First one, the durable goods orders. That comes on Monday. How many manufacturing orders are there out there? That'll be a sign of the health of the economy. Another thing, on Tuesday, Consumer Confidence Index will come out. Consumers have been the mainstay of this economy. Even as business investment has fallen down, consumers are still spending, but are they still confident? Other surveys have been showing a slight decline, so that's gonna be an important one. Another one, what they call the CoreLogic Case-Shiller Home Price Indices will come out on the 27th. Why is that important? Because what's happening to housing prices around the country? That too will have an impact on the economy. Another thing to watch out for in this coming week, of course, is oil and gas. How much inventory is being piled up? We'll get an oil report on the 28th, Wednesday the 28th, natural gas, Thursday the 29th. And finally, we'll get a revision of the second quarter GDP number, which came in at 2.1%. It might go up slightly. Nice thing, but people are already looking to the future, not what happened in the past. I'm pleased today to have a special guest, Philip Howard. His new book, Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left. And he discusses a real crisis in America. The, the American people sense the feeling they're out of control. He discusses it and comes up with some innovative ways to attack it so people feel they're in charge again. Democracy can work. Philip, thank you for being here. Great to be here, Steve. So, uh, Philip, describe the problem that since the 1960s, uh, law, instead of just telling us what you do or don't do, has become, as you put it, an instruction manual. The idea that 
we can put society on automatic pilot with thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of rules and regulations covering every contingency. So we don't have to think. We just show up, follow the rules, and life will be great. Yeah, exactly. So law used to be a system like the Constitution that generally set goals and protocols, and it protected a free society by having these outer boundaries against people breaching contracts or polluting or the like. What happened after the 60s is that we got the idea that law should tell people how to do things correctly. So basically, instead of defining and defending a field of freedom, law replaced freedom, and it came into our daily lives. And and we've been writing like crazy. The people in Washington have been writing rules like crazy, telling people how to do things. And each time there's a new circumstance, there's a new rule, and it's gotten denser and denser every decade, and it is literally paralytic. You, uh, met, you say that Americans feel increasingly isolated and powerless. That's why we got Trump. That's why the political system today, you say, is like a volcano, ready to explode. People sense something is wrong. You quote Hayek, who said something very wise, nothing makes conditions more unbearable than the knowledge that no effort of ours can change them. Yeah, there's this sense of people no longer sense, have a sense of ownership of their daily choices. You know, you want to, I mean, what gives life meaning? It makes it fun. You wake up in the morning and you say, I figured out how to do this or how to make this classroom more interesting or whatever it happens to be, you know, how to start a new business. And today people wake up and they see, gosh, I wonder if this would be legally correct. I better not do this. And so there's this pervasive defensiveness that comes from a sense that anything you do might be illegal. And of course, there's so much law, literally billions of words of it, there's so much law that you couldn't possibly know what's legal or not. Well, you mentioned federal law, 150 million words. Nobody, nobody knows for sure. Hundreds of thousands of uh, rules and regulations. Uh, Harvey Silverglate wrote a book, a lawyer, uh, several years ago called Three Felonies a Day. If you're in a position of responsibility without you knowing it, you're committing three felonies a day. Yeah. I mean, l literally everything can be illegal. I mean, I, I, uh, I've gotten very involved in trying to fix the infrastructure permitting process in this country. I want to get into that. And uh, uh, But first describe, how did we get in this era of thousand-page rule books and law as an instruction manual, where well, it's, uh, human yeah. judgment became, as you put it, illegal. Yeah. Uh, what happened is that we woke up in the 60s to all these abuses, and they were racism, pollution, lies about the Vietnam War, sort of the maraschino cherry on the decade was Watergate. You know, sort of, so you can't trust anybody at the end of the decade. You know, never trust anybody over 30, whatever. And so... Uh, the, the legal scholars got the idea, and no one questioned it, that that with modern technology and the brilliance of that generation, why not just tell people exactly how to do things? And so before the 1960s, we didn't have 1,000-page rule books. We, did, we barely had any. Forest rangers did their job with a pamphlet, and they did it really well. After, in the 70s, they, they got volumes of onion skin rule books, you know, thousands of pages telling them how to do their job, and they did a worse job. Um, the Interstate Highway Act in 1956 under 29 Eisenhower. 29 pages. 29 pages long. And Ten nope. years later, they built 21,000 miles of roads. 
today, the last transportation bill was 500 pages, implemented by thousands of pages of regulations. It would take 10 years just to get permit to fix a bridge. So when uh, President Obama had his uh, $800 billion stimulus uh, bill back in 2009, what was it? Only $30 billion actually could go to infrastructure because of all the rules and regulations? Yeah, because there's no, quote, there's no such thing as a shovel-ready project. No one in the federal government had the authority to make the choice to do what everybody knew was obvious, which is to, you know, pick out some projects and approve them and get, spend the money. So the money got wasted, basically, and block grants to states. So let's hammer it home to uh, listeners go through some of the outrages. People say, oh, those are just anecdotes, but they are all over the place. Uh, you you know, mentioned infrastructure. The Bayonne Bridge in New Jersey, they wanted to raise the height of the bridge, seemingly a pretty simple thing to do. Right. Talk, and, tell and, us what and, actually happened. Right. Environmentally, really important. So they need this 1930 bridge needed to get rebuilt or or in order to allow the new generation of efficient post-Panamax ships to come into Newark Harbor. And they were going to spend $4 billion to build a tunnel or, or a new bridge. It was going to be an environmental disaster. And then a, a lifelong employee of, of the Port Authority said, hey, I wonder if we could just raise the roadway. And they said, well, it's, a, you know, it's an 80-year-old bridge. And they went and engineers went and looked at it and said, yeah, as a matter of fact, we can. It's only going to cost a billion dollars. It's going to save $3 billion. And... You can use the same foundations, so it will have no environmental impact. It won't affect the community. It was just a win-win. You know, it was a fantastic idea and stuff. Five years later, in a 20,000-page environmental assessment, they got approval to do what was completely obvious, to raise the roadway. It's just absurd. I mean, it should have been a 30-page environmental assessment looking at the construction impact. Tell us about the orchard in upstate New York. <laughs> 5,000. Walk us through that, which is, again, symptomatic of what's yeah, happened. Yeah, it's just, I mean, every, every, I mean, pity small business. How could you possibly keep track of all this? So the New York Times does this feature story on regulation of a family-owned apple orchard in upstate New York. They're subject to 5,000 rules from 17 different regulatory programs. In the family office, they have 13 clipboards trying to keep track of all, of all the legal requirements. Um, the granularity of the rules is just astonishing. There was, there was, my favorite rule was the one that said you have to cover the wagon, the, 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 the cart that hold the apple cart, if you will, that, that after the, the apples, apples are picked. So when they're, when they're coming in from the orchard to the wagon, it takes a few minutes, you have to cover it with a cloth to protect against bird droppings. Now, those apples have been growing on the trees for five months, and the federal government has done nothing to protect those apples against bird droppings. I mean, the notion that for a three-minute trip, all of a sudden, there's a rule that says you have to cover the apples that are about to be washed in the barn is just absurd. And there's just a whole slew of those. Um, Another one says you've got to check uh, uh, each morning the orchard to check for mouse and deer uh, droppings uh, to so that the men, when they're walking, don't um, get it on their boots so that when they're climbing a ladder to pick the apples, the 
droppings don't get on the rungs, then then get on their hands, and then get on the apples. You know, it's like this tortured logic. And again, the apples are all going to get washed, right? Right. <laughs> so, so it's it's literally. I mean, and, and these are not things you could intuit. You know, no practical person would ever think that those things are necessary for 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 clean apples. So you have this this bureaucratic structure and. And I hope we get into this and what it does to the human brain. Yes, you'd cite you know, some you know, studies. You know, on... Yeah, the, the, we have this bureaucratic structure that um, th- that forces people to get out of their sense of right and wrong and their sense of what's practical and the sense of how to get things done, which which is largely subconscious, which people are good at, and it forces them out of it and it really exhausts them and it and it makes them hate government. It's like death by a thousand all day long. And teachers in the classroom, you can't can't put an arm around a crying child, you know, all this kind of baloney. Let's go through some of this. Tell the story of the lifeguard. Oh, yeah. So so lifeguard has his jurisdiction on the beach and it's defined. That's fair enough. But he notices somebody drowning just across the edge. So he goes over and rescues the person because they're drowning. And he gets fired, reprimanded for, reprimanded for, because he violated the rules. He went beyond his jurisdiction. I mean, it, it's... Or the fire truck rescuing. Yeah, so the fire truck, so, so uh, a couple of years ago in Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, a call comes out of 911 that a uh, infant has had a seizure and is choking, is turning blue at a fast food restaurant. And it happened that some volunteer firemen were in their truck nearby, and they heard it, and they showed up, and the, the blue baby, they, 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 they took the baby in the truck to the hospital, the emergency room, saved the baby's life. I think it took less than 10 minutes for the whole thing to get the call out, blah, 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 and, there, and the baby's being cared for in the hospital. The next day, they were suspended because the, their fire truck was not certified to transport passengers. You, you know, so, so, so what's the alternative? You know, let the baby die? I mean... Well, that happened. Uh, tell about the fellow who had a heart attack in front of a firehouse. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, a, life, uh, a retired D.C. Parks employee was walking with his daughter um, along the street, and uh, he had a heart attack. It happened to be in front of the firehouse. The firemen are standing there. And he obviously suffered a heart attack. And the daughter runs over to the fireman and said, I think my father had a heart attack. Can you come help? And the fireman said, well, the proper procedure is to call 911. And she said, but he's gasping for breath. He needs help now. No, I'm sorry. The proper procedure is to call 911. So she calls 911. By the time the ambulance got there um, uh, and got him to the hospital, he died. this, This legal mindset has changed our sense of morality. It's really changing the well, culture. Well, walk us through, uh, you point out why bureaucracy is evil, uh, that uh, the whole focus, instead of on get the job done, it's more on make sure you follow all the minute processes, and then you'll be okay even if the mission fails. Yes, and, and so that has um, several obvious flaws. First of all, this whole system is nothing but central planning. In fact, it's worse than central planning. 
after that, at least the planners got together every five years and came up with a new stupid plan that failed. You know, all these rules are basically written by dead people. You know, somebody in 1975 wrote a rule and says it lives forever. You know, and that person long gone. No, nobody ever goes back and fixes the rules. So it's like it's like central, like planning by dead people. So so it's never going to work very well, um, just because it's planning. But it, it doesn't let people adapt in the circumstance. All the stuff that Hayek talks about. You know, the sort of the virtues of adaptation. You know, nothing works by itself. You've, you know, everything is always a new circumstance, and this compliance model. So for lots of reasons, it causes failure. But just as bad as that, it causes people to go brain dead. And this is actually a neurological fact. So what the brain basically has two parts. It has their conscious part called working memory and long-term memory where you have experience and instinct and that sort of stuff. and that's the really smart part of the brain. You know, people's imagination, you know, people come up with ideas. They don't even know where they come up with them. They, they emerge and they say, oh, I'll try that. And, and, and then it works. Or creativity. Doesn't. Creativity. It's unbelievable. And, and drawing on all kinds of experience in a subconscious way when new circumstances present themselves. So working memory is quite shallow. And psychologists say it can only really hold six or seven ideas, most people, even in smart people. So what happens is when you give people lots of external criteria, you use up all of their working memory. They're trying to keep these, these, these checklists straight and all that kind of stuff. And it freezes it so that they can't access long-term memory. So I'll tell a story about this. So a welfare mother, of, so a recent immigrant who is on welfare, files her uh, forms late, she has four children, to get support for her children. She goes to the office with a clerk, and the clerk, she's saying, I'm sorry, but you know, I, I need this money while we're, I just moved here to, to feed the children while I look for a job. The, the clerk says, no, you, it's too late, I'm sorry. And they go back and forth, and finally the clerk says, there is nothing I can do. And the mother leaves the office in tears. There was a researcher there, happened to be, looking at how bureaucracies work, and so he investigates what, what was going on. Well, it turns out that what the clerk meant and was thinking, there was nothing the clerk could do. The, the person in the next office had the power to waive the timing requirement. But the clerk didn't even think of that because all she's thinking about is complying with her rules and her jurisdiction. And she couldn't even access the most obvious response in this situation, which is, Go knock on the next door. You mentioned two different kinds of responsibilities. One responsibility is I'm following the rules. Even if it's a no good result, I follow the rules. I was responsible. The other responsibility is you have a purpose, a mission, figure out how to do it. Yes. And so all of Washington is now in the mode, and you know, or certainly officially and most of the people too, are in the mode of the responsibility to comply. I mean, it's really a sick culture. I could tell you lots of stories about that. I mean, my personal experience with it is constantly that, oh, no, we have to move the process forward. That's all I can do. We have authority, sure. We have authority to set a timetable, and then someone else can waive it. I mean, no one feels they have authority or the job of actually getting the job done. Well, responsibility as a, as a term to have any meaning whatsoever has to be responsibility to actually get a job done. 
let's go to some of these institutions. Let's, uh, no particular order. Let's start with the courts. How did they go berserk on due process? Boy, the courts, um, the courts have really uh, messed things up in, uh, so let's talk about two, let's talk about due process. Due process uh, sounds good. It's like freedom or something, right? It's a good thing. And, uh, but in fact, due process is, is a concept that comes out of the Magna Carta that's designed to prevent abuses of state power by saying that the state can't put you in jail or take your property away without due process of law. So that's, that's, it's really important to our freedom because of that. Uh, after the 1960s, in an effort to create this perfectly fair society, this, this legato of fairness, you know, in Jonathan Swift's term, we decided to apply due process to any, any human um, kind of upset, you know, in, in the public sector. So any public employee can't be fired unless, except through due process of law. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? is it shifts the presumption. The manager now has to prove that this employee is so bad and so much worse than everyone else that they deserve to be fired. Well, the job of the manager is actually to make judgments that aspire hopefully to excellence in the workplace, not to it's a person so bad. So it has literally made it impossible to get rid of bad employees. And, and as a result thereof has, has corroded the public culture of schools and civil service and in, in a way that no good person would want to work in it. Another thing about the courts is uh, the judges don't control the courts. And as you've pointed out, lawsuit can be a weapon if it's capricious and a way of intimidation. And why is it the courts in this new era refuse to run themselves the way they did in the past? It's really incredibly important point. The courts, and I, I talk, I've talked at some length with several of the Supreme Court justices and several of the law lords in England about this, and the law lords in England have figured it out. And Jonathan Sumption just gave a wreath lecture on, on this very point uh, about it's the role of the courts is not to be a neutral referee. The role of the courts is to be neutral for sure, but, but to apply norms of reasonableness that protect the reasonable freedoms of people in a society. So if you let somebody sue for $54 million because the dry cleaners lost a pair of pants, you know, it's a ridiculous lawsuit, the person will lose, eventually lose the lawsuit, but it'll destroy the life of the people sued. Well, that's an absurd thing to allow. It would take a minute or less for a judge to say on the first hearing, maybe you have a claim in small claims court for your lost pair of pants for $100, but you don't have a claim in a court of general jurisdiction for millions of dollars, case dismissed without prejudice to refiling in small claim court. That requires the judge to apply the norm of reasonableness to how much people sue for. That's all it does. It doesn't mean he has to create an absolute rule. He just says it's absurd to sue for millions of dollars, which, by the way, 100% of Americans would agree with. <laughs> uh, but judges don't think that's their job. They think their job is to sit on their hands and let anybody argue almost anything and let the jury decide. That is not law. That's, that's the absence of law. Law is supposed to protect us, 
And their job is to fill the gaps in legislative and regulatory law in, in a way that defends the freedom. Instead, everybody goes through the day looking over their shoulders. You also cite that the, this lack of uh, reasonable running of the courts has led to abuse of so-called individual rights. Oh, boy. Give me my rights. I mean, everybody, all this madness in the, in, in the college campuses where people, you know, get obsessed in their mind about their microaggressions or something, you know, uh, because of their rights. Uh, well, what about my right to say I think you're a jerk? It's a free society. Uh, or to think that's that's ridiculous, or to wear a Halloween costume, or you know whatever it happens to be, and um, it's uh, rights are supposed to be a shield, a shield against state power. They're not supposed to be a sword against other free citizens, or indeed against the state. And so, modern rights are literally not rights. Their swords and their their powers. They're not rights. They're powers over other people. When somebody says, "Give me my rights," I say, "What about my rights?" I mean, it it just needs to be that. It's almost as if the word needs to be repudiated and put back on the constitutional shelf, where the state has somehow sanctioned some abuse was taking away people's freedom. People asserting rights today are basically asserting them to take away people's freedom, not to defend people's freedom. Now, one of the amazing things you point out uh, is that uh, the attempts to solve this problem, we, people saw it back in the 1970s, starting with, with Jimmy Carter. Yeah. For, what what, what Jimmy happened Jimmy Carter actually has been more, was more articulate about this than any president since. He saw it coming in the late 70s and really talked about it. He said, you know, people are no longer acting on their sense of right and wrong. These, the, you know, the, the, the bureaucracy is really upsetting people because they're not, it's, it's, it's dislodging our, 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 our sense of stability in our society. We have to do something with this. Government's got to be responsive to the people, not just be a, you know, thick rule books of stuff. And then, of course, you know, he, he, he got, you know, he got in trouble with, you know, with other things and had the problem of stagflation and he... You know, he had all kinds of other problems, the Iran hostage, you know, thing. and um, So he, he wasn't able to do it. But with the help of his domestic policy advisor, as a young guy then, Stu Eisenstadt, who's a friend of mine, um, you yeah. know, they had a really, they were very thoughtful about this. They, they, they proposed sunset laws. You know, I mean, they had all these ideas that, that are still, Still relevant. Well, I, I, actually, the three which Reagan followed through on, they did do three things in transportation. Right. Trucks, airlines, and right. railroads. Save yeah. the railroad industry. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So they did some deregulation. Um, and, uh, you know, when the Grace Commission then came under Reagan, and they had thousands of, they pointed out thousands of idiocies, they didn't really have a philosophical objection or premise or new way, which is what I'm recommending, you know, kind of to, to rehumanize things. But, but they did have really good ideas, including the base closing commissions, you know, because the truth is, and Polybius talked about this 2,000 years ago, democracy can add, but it can never subtract. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's just, it's like sediment in the harbor, right? It just grows and grows and grows and grows. And so you, you can never count on Congress to actually clean out the stable. It's, it's never going to happen. Well, we're going to get to that. And, uh, but Al Gore made some serious attempts 
and, yeah. and, and, and yet ultimately failed. Yes, and so, you know, Al Gore, you know, people people kind of ridicule him because of his sighing or, you know, his, uh, whatever. But Al Gore, when it comes to uh, regulatory policy and stuff, is actually quite astute. I mean, really, I can, I can point to some pe- surprising people over the last, you know, few decades who— who might not be wise in everything they, they they recommended, but who were really good at this, and and Al Gore uh, went in and, and said, and he did for like daily choices and stuff, give much more authority to um, you know, so you don't have to go through a competitive bidding process to go buy some ballpoint pens. I mean, it sounds small, but but you know, it does save some money, and. Um, and so he did a, a bunch of, or tried to do a bunch of programs to, to streamline things. But he wouldn't ultimately take on the civil service, and you can't, um, you can't actually turn government into a responsibility-based, you know, goals-oriented government unless you can fire people. They've got to be accountable. Then this gets to the question: What to do? And you make the point to the federal government and all of this, uh, not to mention state bureaucracies, what I do with the IRS, just get rid of it and start over in terms of the tax code. But uh, one of the uh, very intriguing things you point out in in your book in terms of uh, the ability of the president to control firing people, letting people go, you mentioned Article 2 in the Constitution, which was sort of undermined by Jimmy Carter signing in 1978 an act that made it virtually impossible to fire anyone. What does Article Two in the Constitution, if you pursue that, give authority to the president to actually control who works in the government? Right. Article Two says executive power shall be vested in a president. Uh, what that means uh, has lots of learning and, and history, which is not in dispute. It was discussed at the time of the framing in something called the Decision of 1789. Um, there was a question about whether the about the president's authority over employees, and it was resolved. And Madison, James Madison. Ma- James Madison, very articulate. If there's one power, if there's one executive power that means anything, this I'm paraphrasing, it is the power to get rid of and to pick all subordinate employees. You know, you've got to have control over the personnel. That was the basic point. When they finally. Um, you know, the spoil system got out of hand after after Jackson. Jackson, and it was a real pain in the ass. It was like campaign finance today. You know, people spent all their time giving out jobs. I mean, Lincoln had that great quote when he got smallpox, tell all the job seekers to come in. I finally have something I can give all of them, you know. <laughs> so so, uh, so, anyway, they, they uh, finally, civil service was, was the idea they were going to have neutral hiring, you know, by test. Um, but even then, there was an attorney general's opinion that you could not restrict the president's authority, that it would be unconstitutional for that law to restrict his authority over firing or even hiring. So they created the rule of three. You know, he could pick among the top three test takers or something. But there was no tenure. There was no restriction on presidential firing. And to this day, Supreme Court precedent talks about reaffirmed in the last couple of years, about what's the, the quote from the opinion in the 20s is the illimitable power of the executive over um, 
employee terminations to that effect. The illimitable power of the executive over that. Well, the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act subjected the president to collective bargaining, which effectively takes away all authority over executive branch employees, and it is clearly unconstitutional. And I've written a long essay on that. I've delivered some lectures at prominent law schools. And um, the Trump administration's picked up on it. They've called me up several times. Um, I've volunteered to write, and I've got uh, uh, public administration professor Paul Light agreed to help me do this. A new civil service code that would be constitutional, but that would restore the authority to actually manage and, you know, sort of imagine that, you know, the public servants. Um, and uh, and we have to fix that. You just can't create a, you can't why, break why, the why, links why, in the chain of democracy. You can't break them and expect democracy to work. So why hasn't there been a suit bef before? Why isn't that? You know, something nobody, it, it, you know, it's like hiding in plain sight. I mean, I, I had a bet. I, I was talking about this a few years ago with a friend who's a Yale law professor, Don Elliott. And he, at some public conference, he said, you know, Philip even has a theory that civil service is unconstitutional. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody laughed. And I said, I talked to him. I said, Don, guess what? I'm going to prove it. And I, and I went and spent, you know, time. And, I, and I've written long legal essay, and people are basically accepting that it's right. So it's a question of finding the right case and taking it to the Supreme Court. Another intriguing thing which would make a difference is uh, you point out that one bureaucracy that seems to work pretty well, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, it's not in Washington, it's in Atlanta. You propose taking all of these agencies out of Washington, spread them around the country, cite the example of the FDA. Why not right. go to Boston or San Diego? We have a lot of uh, health institutions around. be a perfect place for them to operate. Right. It's really the culture. The problem with with Washington is not is not just structural; it's cultural. I mean, there are generations of people who don't know what it means to take real responsibility. You call them mandarins of rule books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are all these people who, with pointy hats, you know, they all wear pointy hats figuratively, you know, and they and they navigate all these intricate rules as if that's important. Um, so we need to disrupt it. Move the agencies out is really not that big a deal. It would save money. I, I, I've costed it out. It would actually save a lot of money because real estate's cheaper in other places and such. And it would give jobs to Akron and Kansas City and, you know, St. St. Louis could use some jobs. Um, and agencies outside of Washington work better because the people there are surrounded by real people who wake up in the morning and go have to actually take responsibility. Another thing you uh, propose, based on the base closings idea, is uh, what you call recodify commissions, where you just take all of these rules and uh, try to just boil them down to a few principles. Yeah, yeah it's really, it is, it, Congress cannot fix this problem. Congress can, as we were discussing earlier, can be additive. They can, they can create a new law like the Affordable Care Act from time to time. They say, but they're never going to take stuff away. Because there are 7,000 interest groups in Washington who, whose whole mission is to preserve the status quo, is to preserve the farm subsidy or, you know, or, you know whatever it happens to be. So Reagan was right. The closest thing to immortality in the world is a government program or agency. Yes. And American citizens know this. 
again, another reason they voted for Trump. They know that Washington is disconnected. It's like a gear with no teeth connected to the rest of the country. It's not responding to the country. It's just spinning for itself. You know, Washington apparently has one of the biggest Lamborghini dealers in the country. I mean, you know, there are all these people doing really well, just doing nothing, you know. And so Americans are right to hate it. But Trump doesn't really quite understand when he says drain the swamp that it isn't you don't drain the swamp by allowing coal to be burnt again. You drain the swamp by getting rid of all this micromanagement. You know, getting people up. You can have distant oversight of safety and go after unsafe workplaces without making people spend, you know, 20% of their overhead filling out forms that matter to no one. Or seven-page instructions on how to use a ladder. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or my favorite OSHA rule is that uh, stairwells shall be lit by natural or artificial light. You know, I mean, you know, air shall contain oxygen. I mean, truly. I mean, you know, you know, be, you know, workers shall be alive. You know, I mean, it's it's not. It, you don't need rules for this. How would how would you do a recodify commission? You mentioned that uh, you could probably uh, do it in three pages. We proposed, and I've testified for Congress uh, on on. On infrastructure permitting, we have a three-page proposal, including all the explanations about what's being removed, uh, three pages that just creates clear lines of authority to decide um, how much environmental review is needed, whether it's effective to make decisions when agencies disagree with each other, to limit litigation to things that really matter instead of, you know, not overturning a pebble, you know, or whatever. Uh, It's really not that hard. And personally, I would like the job of running the recodifications commission. I've thought about this stuff in most areas of regulatory law. It's actually when you go back and you turn um, oversight programs into goals and you're willing to accept a measure of responsibility by people to make choices, they, they can be really simplified but Congress will never do it because there's always going to be a special interest that doesn't like it. So just like the base closing commission, it's got yeah. to be done by a small group of experts. And voted up or down. And voted up or down, yeah. You cite the example, Australian nursing homes, where they had uh, thousands of rules and regulations. Right. And then they boiled it down to a handful of principles like keep the place clean. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, um, you know, and so they, they were someone had the bright idea of replacing a thousand rules with 31 general principles. Have a home like setting, respect the dignity of the residents. The experts scoffed and they went in to study it after they put in this rule. Within a year, the nursing homes were twice as good. And what they found was by taking away the rules, people actually started focusing on the residents and the quality of the place. And so instead of you know, using up your cognitive, you know, your working memory with complying with all these checklists, they were actually looking at the resident, what would make this better? And it allowed people to innovate. So one nursing home would be different than another. And it didn't mean that there weren't disagreements. Disagreements, I argue, are good things. People disagree, and they're all at risk because in my world, there's an authority mechanism to resolve disagreements, as there was in Australia. There's still a regulator up there. And though, but people will have an incentive to try to be reasonable. So they have disagreements, they work it out. They work it out and then things get better. And then, keep, you know, it's just that it was an iterative process of improvement instead of this negative clawing process of 
preserving the status quo that's been determined by somebody who wrote a rule. You, you know, it that doesn't allow improvement and doesn't allow creativity. All the stuff that Steve Forbes has been so brilliant about all these decades. You know, you need to give people, people need the incentive and the joy and the self-respect of making things better and doing things their own way. Well, you mentioned earlier the Forest Service Rangers back in the 50s and 60s did a nice job with a uh, few, few rules or regulations. It was unbelievable. And Herbert Kaufman did this study called The Forest Ranger, published in Brookings in 1960. It was incredible. They had this professional culture like the Centers for Disease Control has now where, where they made all these decisions, how much logging we're going to do here over there. And they had a couple of protocols that they followed that, that kept things kind of straightened out. And they did things in different ways. But every five years, the forest ranger moved to a new district. And so the fact that they each moved to each other's districts meant they, they had to, in a sense, knew that they were answering not only to whatever they wanted, but there was going to be somebody looking at how they did it things when they came into their district five years from now. And just that alone, a little bit of oversight, just a little, you know, a few, a pamphlet, you know, of, of guidelines, and they worked great. They worked great. And there's a whole study about why that, why that is. What are the odds of getting your uh, recodify commission? Well, first of all, the odds of, of changing the system are, are great. Obama, I think, was the first shoe to drop. You know, change we can believe in. The, you know, fresh face. You know, African-American. He could do things other people couldn't do. Really smart and stuff. But it turned out he didn't really have a vision for what change still doesn't. You know, change can be. So then eight years later, eight million Obama voters voted for Trump who promised to drain the swamp. If anybody can throw a bomb in Washington, people thought, and many people think, is, is Trump. Now, Trump, unfortunately, in my view, doesn't have a coherent governing vision either. He, his instincts are right, that it is a swamp, that all that kind of stuff. And you did give credit to uh, three executive orders that he's done a uh, step uh, yeah, in the right direction. Yeah, a lot of good, he's done a lot of executive orders that make sense, but when it comes to remaking the regulatory state, and the, the effect of government on people, you know, that requires more than just, I hate this and I like that. It requires a new way of governing. Um, so I don't know if we can, well, we're going to get change. No one yet has proposed what I'm proposing other than me, you know, recodification commission. Um, I've been working with a marketing expert to come up with an advocacy campaign for the 2020 election designed to insert system overhaul into the debate. I want, because the polling shows that Americans want it. There are two recent polls, one from Brookings, one from the University of Chicago, basically say Americans think that the system is structurally broken. They're right. So perhaps we'll close with uh, something from the private sector, what uh, Maria Barra, at GM, did on 10-page dress code. She right. reduced it down to two words. Dress appropriately. Thank you very much, Philip. Thanks, Steve. And now, here are my reads of the week. A couple of them from the Wall Street Journal. One was an editorial last Friday called A Hundred-Year Treasury. The journal makes the case for the U.S. government issuing 100-year, 50-year bonds. Austria's done it. Mexico, Canada, Belgium, Ireland have all issued these long-term bonds. 
at these crazily low interest rates, why don't we tie those low costs of money in for decades to come so we don't get budget-busting interest rate costs when interest rates inevitably rise in the future? A good read, and it's a good idea. 50-year, 100-year bonds, we should be issuing them. The world has an appetite for them because we're one of the few countries in the world that have positive, among developed countries, that has a positive yield. We put a two or one or two percent interest rate on it, the world will gobble it up. There's $16 trillion worth of bonds out there with negative yields. This is a great opportunity. Let's move on it. The other piece came on Monday from their columnist, Mary Anastasio Grady, called Argentina Needs the Dollar. Argentina repeatedly trashes its currency, the peso, which leads to one economic crisis after another. Several Latin American countries have already dollarized their economy. Panama's had the dollar as its currency for years. Ecuador, El Salvador have dollars, used the U.S. dollar as its official currency. Argentina should do the same as a crucial stepping stone to rebuild its always battered economy. Both of these can be found on WSJ.com. Another read in Commentary Magazine by Joseph Joff, a German, former publisher, now at the Hoover Institution. He writes an article called Europe Does Not Exist. It can be found on commentarymagazine.com, and it talks about how even though Europe pretends it's a superpower, it is not. But the bottom line is, even though Europe has a lot of problems, structural problems, we must work with Europe. We must stay attached to Europe because we have Russia and China and others hemming in on good liberal democracies. So Europe, yes, it has problems. Europe is not a superpower as it fantasizes itself to be, but by golly, we need each other as never before. And finally, a personal one I mentioned last week, the centennial of my father's birthday, this past Monday, August 19th. I published an article online called A Matchless Man, Remembering My Father Malcolm Forbes on His 100th Birthday, it can be found on Forbes.com. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 